It's like one of my favorite parts of the service. You know, we just see all the kids come up and line up and head downstairs. And we have amazing teachers that just love teaching the gospel. Um, okay, so if you're staying in here, obviously you're not in pre-K or K. Uh, we're in St. Kings 18. We are no longer in the Psalms. Psalms was for the summer. We are no longer in the summer. Uh, we're in September. And so every year about this time, we do a series on church leadership. We talk about elders and we talk about deacons. Now, the reason we do this is because come November, we're going to have our annual meeting and we're going to vote in our 2021 budget. Isn't that weird? Like 2021? Like we're just moving right through. Aren't you glad to be done with 2020 though? <laughs> so glad to be done with 2020. Um, and, but also at that time, we're going to affirm the elders that we have for this next year. And so every time, every year about this time, we, uh, we preach on elders, we preach on deacons, and later this month we'll actually have the elders come up and they will uh, give a testimony before you so that you get to know them more and just hear a little bit of their heart. Um, and so typically what we would do is we would jump into some New Testament passages like, uh, like 1 Timothy or Titus where it actually talks about elders. Uh, but this year we're going to do something a little different. We're going to be in some Old Testament passages. And what we're going to do is, is look at the meaning of these passages and then just pull application out for, for why it's important to have deacons and why it's important to have elders. Um, and so it's a little bit new on the way that we are doing this. Um, but we see that these positions are very, very important. In the New Testament, like as you go through the book of Acts, as churches are planted, elders are appointed to shepherd, to teach, to protect, um, to protect the church. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes that elders are a gift to the church in order to build up the church so they will grow in their maturity. Um, what we know is that there's an enemy. And, and in the Bible, we read about Satan, and we read in Revelation 12 that he is like a, a dragon seeking to devour the church. Or in 1 Peter chapter 5, he's characterized as like a roaring lion just looking for, for someone to devour. Um, and so we understand that, that as Christians, that there is an enemy, and nothing more, he wants to shipwreck our faith. But we don't need to be anxious. We don't need to, to worry if he's more powerful than our king. For one, Jesus said in Matthew 16, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. We know that Jesus has already won. In fact, what we read in Colossians chapter 2 and throughout the New Testament is that at the cross, Jesus disarmed and defeated all of, the, uh, of Satan and all of the, the spiritual rulers of this world. And so we have great hope in our king, and we know that when he returns at his second coming, that he will make all things new, and all those who have rejected him, all those who have um, rebelled against his rule will then be judged. Uh, but in the meantime, the way that Jesus, one of the ways Jesus shepherds his church as the chief shepherd is by appointing elders for the point of proclaiming the word, strengthening the church, that we would know the truth of God and that we would continue to persevere in our faith. Again, in Ephesians 4, Paul writes that uh, the church is called to stand firm against false doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, deceitful schemes um, of the enemy. One of the ways that that happens 
is through, uh, through the leadership structure that God has given within his word uh, through elders and through deacons. And so today we're going to be in First, uh, Second Kings 18. It's kind of a part one of a part two sermon. You'll see by the, when we get to the end of 18, we're like halfway through the story and we kind of want to know what's going to happen. And so that's going to be next week. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to see that Assyria is going to come to the southern kingdom, to Judah, and it's going to threaten Judah, and he's tempting, the temptation is for Judah to abandon their faith, to believe it is foolish to trust in God, foolish to trust in Hezekiah, their king, and foolish to think they have any hope at all. And so uh, what we're going to do is just walk through this passage, see what we learn about who God is, what we learn about temptation, and then just bring out some application um, regarding leadership. And then next week, we'll look at the completion of the story as we look at chapter 19. And then the following week, I believe we'll be in... uh, Exodus 3 or 4. I can't remember which one, but read both. Read chapters 3 and 4. Then you'll be set. Uh, But if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and stand. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. We're not going to read all of chapter chapter 18. That is uh, 37 verses. Uh, But I do encourage you to read the story later um, and, and read chapter 19 also in preparation for next week. But right now, we'll just start off with the first eight verses. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nahushten. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept the commandments that the Lord God commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He he struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Let's pray as we dig in this morning. Our Father, we, we just come to you right now in your word. And I pray that we would just grow in our faith as we look at the word that you have inspired and given to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to see that you rule and are sovereign over all things. May we see just the beauty of your grace and how you meet us and provide all that we need that we can stand firm. May we be aware of the lies of this world and may we, may we know the truths of your word that we would stand firm in them. And God, I pray that as a people today, we would grow in our love for you and our love for one another just as we're together as we celebrate the truth of your son, Jesus, uh, this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, so let me just give some context. I know when we jump into the Kings, sometimes we're a little bit, huh, how do we get here? What's happening? What's going on? So it's important to just know a little bit about how the historical books work. Uh, So we'll just back up a little bit. If you start in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel is about the life and rule and reign of King Saul, the first king of Israel. 
2 Samuel is about the life and rule of King David, uh, and David is the great King David. He is called to be a man after God's own heart, and in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with him, and this covenant is that God promises to bring a son from David, a son that will come from the line of David, who will establish the kingdom of God, rule in righteousness for all of eternity. So after King David... What do you think we're doing as we're going through the first and second kings? We're looking for this king. We're looking for the son of David. We're looking for the one who's going to establish the kingdom of God and rule in righteousness for all of eternity. And so uh, what we do is when we start the kings, though, we, we encounter lots of problems. Uh, for example, when we're in first kings, the first nine or 11 chapters is all about Solomon. And things look like they're going well until the end of his life where he begins to have many, many prostitutes and concubines and he begins to worship false gods. And then we have uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is a wicked king and he didn't listen to wise counsel, but instead he, he uh, listened to kind of his frat house guys. And what happened under his rule, the kingdom of Israel, God's people, all 12 tribes, divided into two kingdoms. So like four kings in, and the nation is divided. And we have the, the northern kingdom, which is made up of ten tribes, and the capital of the northern kingdom is Samaria. And it is typically called Israel. And then you have the southern kingdom, which has Jerusalem. This is where the line of Judah is. So this is where we're going to be focusing as we look for the greater king David that is to come. And so these nations have been divided, and they never come back together. And so once you hit Rehoboam, they're divided. You have the northern kingdom, which has 18 wicked kings. Every king is wicked, and eventually they will go into captivity by Assyria, which we'll actually read in verses 9 through 12 of our text today. And then you have the southern kingdom, uh, which we'll see is going to be attacked by Assyria, but will actually not go into exile until later when Babylon attacks them. And so that's a little bit of just where we're at and how we get to where uh, here. Now, the southern kingdom had good kings and bad kings. Um, one of the bad kings was Ahaz. And he, uh, what he did was he established, uh, he established altars all throughout the land of Judah. Uh, altars to false gods. And he, um, he propagated and promoted the worshiping of false gods. He even took one of his own children and sacrificed them to one of the false gods. And so we just see the kind of the spiritual darkness of Ahaz. But Ahaz had a son. And Ahaz's son was Hezekiah. And when we come to Hezekiah, we have this big breath of fresh air. And he seems to be portrayed as the greater David. In fact, as we're in these first eight verses, we might even be going, is this the guy? He looks like the guy. He sounds like the guy. I mean, he, he looks like everything that we've been promised. In fact, let's just walk through uh, what we just read. Verse three, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Verse four, he removed the pagan altars and got rid of all the idolatrous practices. And verse five, he trusted God. And then notice, there's none like him before him or after him. That's a pretty amazing compliment. In verse 6, we see he obeyed God's word. Verse 7, he rebelled against the rule of Assyria. Verse 8, he defeated the Philistines. Now, real quick trivia, who's the other king that defeated the Philistines? David. Only one other king that defeated the Philistines. So it, it seems that we're to actually be thinking, is this the greater David? Um, because he, Hezekiah seemed to have ushered in this golden era. Everything is positive. Judah is obeying God. 
And then, so right after we have what's happening in the land of Judah, in verses 9 through 12, uh, kind of like a newspaper clipping, we're giving a little bit of what's happening um, or what has happened in the northern kingdom, in Samaria, in Israel. And so in verses 9 through 12, we read that Assyria has come and defeated Samaria. Israel and taking them into exile. In fact, we read that in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmanazar, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. And, and notice, this is during the reign of Hezekiah. We're, we're then told in, in verse 10, um, and, and at the, or yeah, uh, verse, at the end of verse 10, Hezekiah, which was the ninth year, um, in the sixth year of Hezekiah. So he's 31 years old at this time. And so, so now we, we see, okay, Assyria's just been, or Samaria's just been taken. Now we might go, why? What happened? Well, in verse 12, it says, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant. So we have the northern kingdom has continually disobeyed God, rebelled against God, and therefore God has led Assyria to take them into exile, and they're defeated. So now just think about it. What are we, be th what are we to be thinking if we're in the southern kingdom? It's a good thing we have Hezekiah. It's a good thing we got a guy who loves Jesus. It's a good thing we have a guy who's, who's worshiping God, who's gotten rid of all the idolatrous practices. I mean, everything looks really, really good. And then we come to verses 13 and 14 and everything changes what we see is that assyria attacks judah and defeats many of the cities in fact let's just read verses 13 and 14 in the 14th year of king hezekiah so what does that mean he's about 39 now sennacherib king of assyria came up against all the fortified cities of judah and took them now just real quick don't think like two or three cities don't even think five or ten cities 46 cities is what Sennacherib took. He comes in like a plague, destroying everything, wiping out, um, wiping out Judah. And then in verse 14, it says, And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish. Now, I know to us that doesn't mean anything, uh, but Lachish is the second biggest city in the southern kingdom, just under Jerusalem. Lachish is on like this mound um, or a mountain with steep uh, cliffs all on the side. There's one ramp, one entrance point. There's two sets of walls. Each wall is 20 feet thick with a kill zone in between it. I mean, it's like a fortress of four. It was really cool. I was reading about it this week. I was like, man, this, this is awesome. But Assyria was, uh, was very, what's the word? They were, they were determined. So they built their own ramp right up the cliffs, went right through the walls, and destroyed the whole city and killed everyone in it. Um, so, so when we come to this point, don't just, oh, yeah, so Assyria came into land. No, they're coming in on a rampage, destroying everyone. And you've got to think there's probably some fear going on. But, but let's just pause at this moment. We have the northern kingdom was destroyed because of their unbelief, so we get that. But now we have Hezekiah and Israel, or Judah, and they're, they're knocking it out of the park. They're worshiping God. And yet what we then see is that even though they have faith in God, they're not immune to trials and difficulty. This is something we need to know. Faith does not protect us from experiencing trials. Like We need to know that truth. 
There are so many people in the church that, that do not know this truth. I have heard countless times, and you have heard probably things like this. This person was so faithful. I don't know how they got cancer or how they got this disease. This person, they go to church, they read their Bible. How could they have possibly have lost their job? This person, they give faithfully. They're involved in church, children's ministry, deacon, elder. They're, every, they're here every time the gates are open. How is their marriage on the rocks? How is it that they're encountering difficulty? Have you heard that? Have you heard people like, like grumble at that or, or just kind of say those things in bewilderment? Um, maybe, maybe you think that. Um, so many people have listened to this lie that, that has gone forth in many, uh, I'll say just false churches that says that your faith is like a shield that will keep bad things from happening to you. And that is a lie straight from the pits of hell. I mean, that is, that is nowhere in this book. 66 books inspired by the Spirit of God. Nowhere will you find that if you have faith in God, nothing bad will happen to you. We don't see that at all. In fact, there is a, a massive movement right now uh, called the Prosperity Gospel. And this prosperity gospel basically says, uh, if you believe in God, he wants, he wants you to have your best life now. You've probably seen that book, Your Best Life Now. If you believe in God, he wants to give you everything you want, wealth, possessions, prestige, popularity, whatever it is. And if you don't get it, it's because you don't have enough faith. So what do you need to do? You need to try harder, work harder, believe more. And what do you think happens when that doesn't work out? people they abandon the church because they say well well this god has failed me or maybe maybe i i just couldn't cut it maybe god doesn't really love me i i just couldn't believe hard enough and so bad things kept happening so they run from the church never ever wanting to come back in and this is nothing new in fact, if you go back to the parables of Jesus, like in Matthew chapter 13, we read about this lie. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives uh, the parable of the soils. Now real quick, basically, uh, there's four types of soil, which basically represent four types of responses to the gospel. So we're only going to look at one of them today, but I encourage you, go look at Matthew 13. It's the first parable that Jesus gives. In fact, I believe it's the first parable he gives in each of the gospels. Um, and this is what we read about the seed that falls on the rocky soil. So just pay attention. This is a way that some people will respond to the gospel. This is the one who hears the word. This is the one that falls on rocky soil. So Jesus says, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises... On a court of the word, immediately he falls away. You see what happens? He goes, wow, the gospel sounds really good. Yeah, I'm all in. And then all of a sudden, life gets hard. Suffering happens. Someone dies. Someone gets sick. Financial trouble. Whatever it is. And he goes, wait, what? I didn't sign up for this. I thought everything was supposed to be good. And so he chucks his faith and he leaves the church never to come back again. We see this starting all the way back in the first century. So we, we need to know this. Trials are a means in which God strengthens our faith and prepares us for his return. Do you know that? Trials are the means in which God strengthens our faith and prepares us for his return. We could do a whole sermon series just on trials and suffering, um, but we're not. We're doing one more on 
leadership, kind of. Uh, we, we see this truth in like James chapter 1, which we preached James last year. This is what James says in chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Why? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, meaning that you will grow in your maturity and you'll be ready for when Jesus returns. So here, James is saying, guys, Look, I know none of us want trials, but trials are good because they have a purpose behind them. God is the perfect father, and he's using them as a means for preparing us for the return of his son, Jesus. Um, This is a truth that we as elders are called to preach. This is one of the reasons that we have elders in the church. This is one of the ways that we combat the lies of the world is by preaching the truth of of God's word that when you believe in Jesus Christ that does not mean you are immune to trials or suffering but now we know that there's a purpose in them and God is using them for you and we might not always see it maybe not right away maybe not ever until Christ returns but but what we see we have 66 books testifying of this truth and I want you to just think about it how are we saved like, think about it. Why is it you and I have hope that we are forgiven of our sins? Is it not through the suffering of Jesus Christ at the cross? I mean, the only reason we can be forgiven, the only reason we have hope, the reason we're here is because there was a man who went to the cross, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and suffered and died so that whoever believes in him would be saved and forgiven of their sins. What we see throughout the Bible is while the world will say we should avoid suffering, as God says, look, I actually work very powerfully in the midst of suffering. And the greatest good of all time was accomplished at the cross where Jesus dies and then rises again so we could be forgiven. And now what we read through the Gospels, through the New Testament, is that God uses suffering in your life and in my life as a means of advancing the Gospel and as a means of preparing us for His return. This is one of the reasons that we have elders, is to preach these truths so that we'd be reminded of them. So what we then know is is when Assyria comes and shows up on the doorstep of Judah, it's not because God's on vacation. It's not because God is sleeping, but God's working right now. We're actually going to see what he's doing in chapter 19. So you've got to come back next week, and I encourage you, read 2 Kings 18 and 19 all together. It's an amazing story. Um, But let me just encourage you also, whatever you're going through right now, and I know 2020 is just crazy, right? Like we're all ready for 2021. (laughs) But God's in control, and God's working, and what he's calling you to do is trust in him. He's wanting you to know that he's present with you, he's powerful, and he will provide all that you need so you can stand firm right now in whatever you're going through. That's the truth that we see throughout scripture. In fact, in my own house, we've kind of had, uh, we've had our own sort of trials. We've had the Jackson Appliance Meltdown of 2020. Some of you have heard about this because you know it's gone long enough. You just can't hide this stuff, and you can't make it up either. So uh, seven and a half weeks ago, our fridge went out. It's still out. Um, Potentially in nine weeks, it will be fixed. Um, 
but we're, see, we're dealing with repair people and, and warranty issues. Um, and, and at the same time, our fridge went out, our outdoor freezer went out. So all the cooling mechanisms in my house stopped working, uh, which, which was awesome. And uh, so the freezer has worked again outside, but we have no indoor cooling mechanisms. Um, and then uh, what the ironic thing is, is then our, our hot water heater went out. So we, now we had no mechanism for, for, heat, for heating the house or for providing anything hot within the house. And so that went out for two weeks. And then when that was being uh, removed, it, it flooded part of my downstairs, which, which was awesome. Uh, so it was just like one thing after another, after another, after another, after another. And we've had all of these uh, people cancel on us on appointments to come fix things. And it's definitely been frustrating. It's been strange. Uh, but I'll tell you what, and, and as as kind of silly as it is, but, but after seven and a half weeks, you know, you kind of get a little like, huh, what's happening here? Uh, my wife and I have joked around about it, and what we've seen, though, is God is just reminding us that, you know what? Our hope and our peace, it doesn't come from, from hot water, from ice cubes and refrigeration. Like, it doesn't. Now, we, we can feel like it does, and you don't really know how much you're kind of liking and enjoying those things until they're gone uh, for nine weeks. But, uh, but even in the, in, in the silly trial like this, what God's just saying is, I'm present with you, and he's just showing how we can have joy and how we can have patience at this time because he is good. And the crazy thing is, is many of you have actually provided us with, with hot water for showers. Uh, many of you have provided us with, with help for refrigeration and other things. Uh, so God has prepared, uh, provided for everything that we need. But we also have, um, I received an email this morning from Matt. Matt's in charge of Project 92, which is our 16 uh, missionaries who are our indigenous missionaries in India who are proclaiming the word. Uh, and he said, we need to be praying for them because uh, India is becoming even more radicalized in their Hinduism, which means they want a one, they, a, a one faith, basically, country. If you're not Hindu, uh, it, it's, they're trying to make it legal that, that you can be killed on the spot. Uh, and so we have 16 guys uh, that we're supporting at this church who are risking their lives each and every day. And in the area that they're in, in southeast India, Andhra Pradesh, uh, it's becoming even more radicalized and, and more severe there, just the persecution. And so he just sent an email today and said, we need to pray for these guys. We need to pray. We need to pray that they will stand firm but more importantly, as these guys are elders in shepherding and reaching out to their churches and building the churches, that they will help their people stand firm. And they won't be like the rocky soil, but they will know the truth of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, so the first thing we see in this passage is that our faith does not prevent trials from coming our way. Um, next, as, as we kind of continue on, in verses 14 and 16, we see Hezekiah's response to Assyria. So Assyria, uh, they're, they're destroying Lachish, and now they're saying, what were you thinking when you rebelled against us? And, and so uh, Hezekiah freaks out. And he doesn't probably do, or he doesn't do uh, the most faithful thing at this moment. He says, what do you want me to do? Whatever you do, I'll do. And so Assyria says, pay up. And so he gives him a number. So then uh, Hezekiah goes into the temple. He goes into the treasuries and he goes into his own palace and he strips it of gold and he takes all the silver and he sends it to Assyria. 
And, and we actually see that several times all throughout the, the book of Kings. And every time we see a king do that, it is a lack of faith. And so Hezekiah, he's not trusting in God at this moment. He's just trying to, how do I get rid of this problem? I'll pay it off, but what do we know? Money's not going to solve your problems, and money's not going to uh, give you happiness, right? Because what's going to happen right after this is Assyria is going to go, hey, wow, that's great. Now we still want your kingdom. The money didn't really pay them off. Now they, they have your money and they still want the kingdom. And we'll look in a moment and see what happens there. But what we need to see here is verses 1 through 8, we have this picture, this overview of the life of Hezekiah. And, and I think if we only had verses 1 through 8, we'd say, this is him. This is the greater king. This is who we need to put all our hope in. And yet, what we see is that he's not perfect. He's flawed. In fact, as we go throughout the entire book of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, guess what? There's not one perfect king. Hezekiah is not perfect. Solomon wasn't perfect. Not even the great king David was perfect. Um, in fact, even as we, we come into the New Testament and, and we look at elders and as they're called to lead the church and deacons, guess what? They're not perfect either. In the book of Galatians, Paul has to rebuke Peter, one of the apostles who walked with Jesus because he was living in such a way that denied the gospel. And so Paul rebukes him. And so what we understand here is that there is no perfect person. There's no perfect king. There was no perfect priest. There was no perfect prophet in the Old Testament. And guess what? In the New Testament, there's no perfect elder either. And that's just good for us to remind ourselves. Uh, and so I'll help remind you right now, just in case you were a little bit confused, you're not perfect. Just in case, you know, you were a little fuzzy on that detail. Um, I'm not perfect. Uh, as, as an elder, I'm far from it. As Chris and Rich or other elders here, we are not perfect. I'm not a perfect father, husband, son, friend, or pastor. Uh, neither is Chris, neither is Rich. Um, there is none of us here who are. Uh, as elders, we, we seek to, to lead well, but we will not always, well, we will not lead perfectly. And there will be times that we make mistakes. Um, you know, that's never giving us an excuse for any sin that we commit. Um, but we do need to realize that there is no perfect person in the church. But that leads us all to to why Jesus Christ had to come. It's because we didn't have a perfect king. It's because there was no perfect priest. It's because there was no perfect prophet. There's no perfect elder. There's no perfect deacon in the New Testament. But Jesus comes because we need that perfect king. We need that perfect priest. We need that perfect prophet. We need that perfect shepherd. And so he leaves heaven 2,000 years ago, becomes the God-man, lives on this earth for about 30 years, where then he will go to the cross, and because of his perfection, he's able to stand in your place and in my place. And he's able to absorb the wrath of God so that we believe in him, we would be forgiven of our sins. And in fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that because of what Jesus has done, he's the perfect high priest. That Guess what he does now? He gives you the perfect grace you need to stand firm in any situation you're in. See, he's excited. And in 1 Peter 5, we read that Jesus is the chief shepherd. So while, while Chris, Rich, and I, and no other elder, and no other person within the church is, is a perfect shepherd or a perfect church member, but guess what? We do have the perfect ultimate shepherd, Jesus Christ. 
And so your role and my role as an elder is just we direct everyone to Jesus all the time. That's what we want. We're not going to do it perfectly, but we're going to strive on a daily basis to do that. And one of the ways that we do that, one of the ways that Rich, Chris, and I can lead well, one of the ways that you can lead well is through our prayers for one another. Your prayers are one of the means of grace that God uses to help shepherds to lead well. Do you know that? The only chance that Chris, Rich, and I have is God's grace. And, And you, in your prayers, or one of the ways that God gives that grace. And, and as we pray for one another, that's how God gives grace to each of us that we would stand firm. And so I just want to encourage you, none of us are perfect. We all need prayer that we would stand firm. Hezekiah wasn't, none of us are. That's why we need Jesus. Now we come to 2 Kings verse 17. And what we see is that Sennacherib's the king. And he's now going to bring his army to Jerusalem. And what we're going to see here is that the trial that he's encountering, that uh, Hezekiah is encountering, that Judah is encountering, is not just physical, but it's spiritual. This is a spiritual trial. And what I mean by that is uh, we've already said God brings trials into our life to strengthen our faith. And one of the ways that our faith is strengthened is when God reveals in our life areas that we do not trust him, areas that we're harboring sin. It's easy for us all to say, man, I really love God. I trust in God when everything's going well, right? Like when all of our appliances are working, like we're all like, God is good, right? And you remove them for like three months or two months, and all of a sudden we're like, man, what is happening here? Or even much worse, if you're a missionary in India and you're experiencing the persecution there, you, you might begin to wrestle with, do I really believe what I believe? And so here in our text, we're going to see that Assyria is going to turn the heat up on Judah's faith, and they're going to tempt them to abandon their faith. And there's three temptations. We're just going to kind of walk through them kind of quickly. Number one, sin says it's foolish to trust in God. Um, and your outline's a little bit different because I had to modify it for a, because it's 2020, so I had to modify it. Uh, but sin says it's foolish to trust in God. In verse 19, the representative of Assyria, the Rabshakeh, he says to Hezekiah's representatives, what do you rest this trust of yours on? Like, you rebelled against us. What were you thinking? Verse 20, he says, whom do you trust that you have rebelled against me? Do you see, this is a spiritual test. Like, this is a trial of the heart. Like, who are you trusting in? What were you thinking when you didn't pay Assyria the money that you were supposed to? Who did you think that you were, you were trusting? And who was going to protect you at that moment? In verse 22, the Rapshika directly attacks their faith in God. And I think it's helpful for you to think of him like the snake in the garden back in Genesis chapter 3, slithering in, giving his lies. This is what he says in verse 22. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before the altar in Jerusalem? You see, what he basically did there, it says, um, we see that he's done his homework. He knows what's happened in Israel or in, in Judah. He says, Hezekiah removed all the false altars, right? Hezekiah is only telling you to worship the one true God. How's that working out for you? You see the army, we're here, we're going to destroy you. How's that going, your trust in this God? And in fact, in verse 25, he's then going to say, in fact, your God's the God who told us to come destroy you. So now he's saying, why would you trust this God? He hasn't protected you. Now he wants to destroy you. 
This is, this is what Satan does. He whispers the lies into our head that we begin to believe and we begin to doubt God. Now, it's okay to question God. You, you know that, right? Like you go through the Psalms and the psalmist is going, God, where are you? What are you doing? How are you working in this? We see it's okay to question, but there's a difference between question and then doubting and denying God. And that's what Satan wants us to do. And so I would just encourage you, whatever you're going through right now, know that it's okay to question, but Satan wants you to doubt and deny. Deny God. In fact, deny his very existence. That would be temptation number one. Temptation number two, sin says it's foolish to trust in your leaders. Four times. Uh, the rapture cut will attack Hezekiah. Verse 29, verse 30, verse 31, verse 32. Do not listen to Hezekiah. Do not listen to Hezekiah. Do not trust in Hezekiah. Do not trust in Hezekiah. Do you see the strategy? If you can drive a wedge between the leaders and the people, what do you think is going to happen? What, what, do a, what does a divided people do? They fall every single time. And all throughout the Bible, we see Satan and sin trying to drive a wedge between leaders and the body. And when we see this division occur. We see it in, in the Old Testament between the people of God and the prophets and the kings. We see it in the New Testament. We see Paul uh, constantly wrestling with the Corinthians and other churches on, on the leadership and on the unity that they're to have because they're, they're fighting against him. Satan wants nothing more than to divide us as a church. And one of the ways we see that is when we begin to fall into sin, we'll stop reading the Bible, we'll stop praying, and guess what else we start to do? We stop gathering with the church because we want to remove ourselves from any level of accountability from one another and especially from any leadership. We see it all the time. And so I just encourage you, if you know of someone who's not gathering with the church, we need to reach out for them. In fact, that's one of those things that elders were called to do is as, as this picture of shepherds and sheep. If, if a sheep starts to wander, we're called to go after because there's nothing more that Satan wants to do is lure the sheep away from the flock because a stray sheep is a vulnerable sheep. And so we want to come after, you, come after one another in love and in humility that we would persevere in our faith. So that's number two. Number three, sin says it's foolish to think there's hope. Seven times in verses 29 to 35, the rapture code will say, um, no one can deliver you from our hands. In fact, in verse 35, or in verse 34, he will say, he'll say this, uh, verse 35, Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? So basically he's saying, and in, in the previous verse he listed some gods, he said, none of these gods were able to save the people. Do you think your gods any different than these other gods? Do you see the lie here? Your God's no different. And that is a lie that our world wants us to believe also. We'll hear it in many ways today. One of the ways we hear it is, look, all roads lead to heaven. You believe what you want. I'll believe what I want. It doesn't matter what God you believe in. Or many humanists will, will say today, you know what? Religion is just a crutch. Your belief in God is just a crutch for weak-minded people to get through this world. You don't even need God because, because they can't help you. There's no... There's no real benefit to God. And that's, that's what the rapture code, that's what Assyria, that's what the world, that's what Satan, that's what sin whispers into our ears on a daily basis. There is no 
hope. So we end this chapter with, will Judah and Hezekiah trust in God, or will they abandon their faith? Now, next week we see the answer, and, and the preview is, um, yes, they keep their faith, and we see God actually show it's not um, the thing that's foolish is to trust in Assyria, is to believe in these lies. And what we'll see is Assyria gets completely and absolutely wiped out. But there's four things I just want us to think about as, as we close. Number one, there is an enemy, and he desperately wants to destroy the church. We need to know that. There is an enemy, and he wants to destroy the church. And if you're a Christian, then you're in the crosshairs of this enemy. There's nothing more than he wants you to do is then abandon your faith. And he will whisper whatever lies and bring whatever temptations he can that you would do that. Number two, Jesus is our king, and thus we do not need to be afraid. Again, we've already said at the very beginning, Jesus conquered and defeated our enemies. He did so at the cross. His resurrection proves it. He now seats at the, sits at the right hand of God, where one day he will return and judge all those who have not believed in him. And we who have believed in him will be brought into the new heavens and new earth, where we will live forever. And that is what we as elders, we preach. We preach there is an enemy, but there is hope in Jesus. And it's not a hope like I hope I win the lottery, but you have no chance. <laughs> But it is a confident hope because our king went to the grave and then rose three days later conquering it. Number three, one of the ways Jesus shepherds the church is through elders. One of the ways that the people stand firm, one of the ways that we grow mature, just one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways is through the preaching of the word, through uh, the shepherding that elders do. And so I want to encourage you to be praying for, for me, praying for Chris, praying for Rich, uh, praying for all the elders that we ever have because we, we desperately need your prayers and God's grace. And number four, I want you to consider if God would be leading you to be an elder. Now, immediately you might say, well, that's not me. And you're going to say, well, because I don't know enough, because I've done a lot of dumb things in my past. I'm definitely not good enough. Uh, you know, you just come up with your reasons. Um, but what we see is that God doesn't use perfect people, right? Hezekiah wasn't perfect. Pa Peter wasn't perfect. Paul wasn't perfect. But what does he use? He uses willing people. And so all, all, I, all I ask you to do as men here is that you would just pray would God be leading me to this? Now, that might not be for 2020 or 2021. It might be, might be next year. It might be five years. It might be 20 years from now. But I, I just encourage you, don't answer the question right now. But pray about it. And I would encourage women, I would encourage uh, you to pray for your husbands. Uh, children, pray for your fathers that if God would be calling them this. And, and even if you're never an elder here, that we would grow in the character of what an elder is because really what we just see that is that's becoming more and more like Christ. Because Jesus is our chief shepherd. And so our goal, whoever, whoever we are, men or women, is that we would become more like Christ. But I just wanted to encourage you and just put it in your ear and just ask that you would pray. Would God be leading this at some point in my life? And if you're if you at all are just willing to pray that, if you're just willing to say, I'm willing to pray, I have no idea what that looks like, I don't even think that could be a possibility, but I'm willing to pray, I would just love to pray with you and talk with you about that. Just pray with you and talk with you about that. Um, but ultimately, we have our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And so let's pray, and we're going to take communion as we celebrate who Christ is. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can come and gather inside like we are right now. 
Lord, I thank you for the children's ministries that are taking place and the kids that are being discipled and loved on right now. Lord, I thank you that you have sent your son Jesus because there is no perfect king, prophet, priest, elder, deacon, or anyone. And thus you have sent your son that we would be saved, that we could be forgiven, and then we could be used to build one another up. And Lord, I pray that we would know the truth that, Lord, you use trials for the purpose of strengthening our faith. Let us not be deceived by the enemy that the presence of trials means the absence of you. But Lord, you are good and you are holy. And I pray that we are encouraged in our faith today that we can stand firm because you are with us. In your name, Jesus, amen.